If you don't do it, it's fine, but you should. You should make it more beautiful. So Tosvut says, look, not only do I know that a mitzvah that is performed not in the most beautiful way is in general valid, I have proof from this mitzvah, from the wrapping of the lulav and the etra, from the lulav, the hadasim and the aravot, that there, the Gemara provides a beautiful way to do it, namely by wrapping it together. And if I don't do it, so I don't do it. So how can Rashi say that the reason that an etrog is invalid if it's dry is because you didn't fulfill Hidur Mitzvah? Right? That is the, the question that we have to ask, okay? Which is, again, Rashi says the given facts are a lulav or an etrog that's dried out is invalid. Rashi says this is because of the general value of performing mitzvot in a beautiful way. And Tosud says that can't be because as wonderful as it is to make sure that a mitzvah is done beautifully, that can never invalidate a mitzvah if you fail to do that. The only way to say that you can invalidate and undermine a mitzvah if it lacks its aesthetic qualities is if the aesthetic qualities define it. An etrog is defined as a beautiful fruit, as a priyetadar, and therefore this is not a universal role, it is a local rule. Okay, that is the fundamental dispute. But what I want to try to understand here is Rashi. That's what I want to understand. Tell us what I get. Tell us what I get. Tell us what said, listen, in the rest of your Jewish life, you should always do mitzvah beautifully. But if you don't, okay. But, but etrog, etrog is unique. It is called a beautiful fruit. So that I understand. We still have to explain, and we will, what it means that there's a unique element of beauty in the etrog. We have to explain that. But I don't get Rashi. Right, just like tell us what, what does it mean? I don't understand. Rashi is also aware of the fact that normally, if I don't have a beautiful menorah, so big deal. But why is it that the etrog, right? He can say it's invalid, even though not because of some local definitional rule, but because it, you know, the general value do mitzvah in a beautiful way. Okay, but that's not enough to make an etrog not an etrog. So, what is Rashi? doing. So before I move on and give you my suggestion and build a theory around it, I'll, I'll pause here. Thoughts, suggestions? What do you want? I'll open it to, to questions here, either by chat or by, uh, um, or you can unmute yourself if you want. Okay. So uh, let me give you my suggestion. Um, my suggestion generally is as follows. We've presented a binary here, right? Either there is there are universal rules, right? There are rules that permeate our entire Jewish life, like for Tosvah, the mitzvah to the, the value of having all your mitzvah beautiful, right? There are things that are just they're general. And then there's a second category. Right? Every mitzvah has its own special laws. Right? Obviously, no one's going to say that uh, you know there's a there's a mitzvah to have matzah on on uh, on Seder night, um, and there's a mitzvah to I mean mitzvah der abanan, but still a rabbinic mitzvah to have um, a meal on Shabbat, and no one's going to say, oh, 
maybe on Shabbat, you have to have two unleavened loaves because, well, we know that in other places you need to have unleavened bread on Pesach. Everyone understands that Pesach is unique. Matzah is unique. Matzah has its own definition. So there's universal rules. And then there's, um, and then there's local laws. But many places in Torah, I think that there is a third category. Right? There's a third type of law or third type of value or principle um, that it's not really local, but it's not global either. Um, and that is a law that manifests itself in some way at all times. But then in certain years, in certain parts of the year or at certain times or certain instances, we obligate you to intensify those values so that on the one hand, yes, there's something unique about what you're doing now, but it sheds light on what you're doing the rest of the year. So let me give a very simple example. Seder night, there's a mitzvah of Sipur Yitziat Mitzrayim, of telling the story of, of leaving Egypt, teaching our children. We do it at the Seder. We do it with acting out. We do it with special foods that are part of the story. It's a very intense night. Every day of the year, there is a mitzvah of Zichirat Yitziat Mitzrayim, of remembering it. And that's why the third paragraph of Shema um, in addition to discussing the mitzvah tzitzit, the Gemara says it's included, the missionary says it's included, because it talks about the Exodus. Now, it is true that there are many unique features to Seder night that do not apply the rest of the year. And many commentaries like emphasizing that. Like Seder night, we do it with we do it with matzah. So there's an illustrative component, an acting out component. On Seder night, we do it in the form of question and answer. On Seder night, we do it with wine. On Seder night, we do it leaning. On Seder night, we are supposed to add and go into depth and expound and tell stories. Seder night is clearly a different and a an in more intense version of this. But I'd be hard pressed to say, that just because Seder night is so much more intense and is unique in so many ways that it is totally divorced and totally disconnected from the daily mitzvah of remembering the exodus from Egypt, right? Instead, what I would say is as follows. Our life is supposed to be influenced by the lessons that we learned when we left Egypt, right? As the Ramban notes, right? Um, so many times the Torah, especially when we're talking about ethical mitzvot, about taking care of the disenfranchised, of the slave, of the etc. The Torah will invoke the memory of Egypt and say, remember you were slaves, remember you were slaves. Right? We'll invoke it in theological contexts to remember what, the background to the forging of our covenant with God. So those ideas are supposed to permeate our entire life. And that's why every day we need to nod at them. But that doesn't, but in order to make sure that every day of our life, where it's part of our life, we, at least in the back of our minds, understand what that means. Once a year, we 
pull out all the stops and we intensify that value, we intensify that experience. So yes, it's different, but they're also related. Or if we want to take a mashal, a parable, not from the Torah, right? We all understand that on a regular basis, uh, you have a married couple, right? So on a regular basis, you know, they, you have a couple that they try to, you know, obviously you try to be nice to each other. You try to communicate. You try to find time for date nights. You try to, um, you know, give each other presents to know that you appreciate each other, right? And you do that throughout the year. And then at certain times of year on your anniversary, whatever the case may be, right? Then suddenly, right, you go out for a fancy meal and you give a bigger present, right? Because are those completely disconnected? No, they're not, right? It's every so often you devote that day to thinking about your, your relationship, about emphasizing your relationship so that obviously you can't every day of the year, go to a fancy dinner, have, you know, a long date night, give expensive gifts. We can't afford that. We don't have that type of time, right? But if you do it once a year, you do it twice a year and you emphasize the importance of the relationship. So then when you give the small presence, you go, you know, you take time for a at-home mini date, right? It keeps that, you know, it keeps that flame alive as it were, right? But it draws strength from the big deal that you make on your anniversary, right? There are these, I there and that is somewhere between, right? The connection between those two is not, right? These aren't different, but they're not the same either, right? It's that there are certain values that we understand to properly understand them, to properly experience them. We need to take certain times of year where we express them to their fullest so that when we express them less intensely throughout the rest of the year, Right. We have sort of the the background to draw on to understand them in context, even if we obviously can't um, express them with their full intensity all the time. Right. We're just not built that way. So I would argue that the same thing is true, according to Rashi here. And Rashi thinks that in Etrog, it's clear, as Tosfut correctly notes, that Etrog and the value of beauty and the aesthetic value and the impact it can have is much more intense by Etrog to the point where the Etrog is literally defined as a beautiful fruit as you have in, in Source 6. That you should take for you on the first day of Sukkot a beautiful fruit. And then you rejoice before God. It's clear that the etrog is, for some reason, uniquely about beauty, about the value of aesthetics. But just like the intense effort you put into your anniversary, right? carries over and reminds you about the, right, helps you um, focus on the importance of your relationship throughout the year, even when you can't be as intensely involved. Taking one day a year, one week a year, when we celebrate beauty in mitzvot and the value of beauty reminds us of its place everywhere else. And therefore, Rashi will tell you that even though Etrog is unique, it actually is 
not distinct from the from the value of beautiful mitzvot in general. It's more similar to the anniversary and the at-home date, right? That this is when we go all out, but it's really just an intensification of the same value and the same appreciation of doing mitzvot um, beautifully and maximally the rest of the year. And you see in the Gemara just how much the Gemara um, embrace this idea of beauty. So if you see in number seven, the Gemara says, Tanurabanan, pre hadar, the beautiful fruit. What makes it beautiful? It is a fruit where even in the bark, there's a certain citrusy taste. So, and many of the of the philosoph more philosophical and more and more homiletical sources love this idea, right? That there's something beautiful about um about um, integ uh, integrity, not in the honesty sense, but the in one's whole self being integrated, right? That right, a tree which has a different taste from the from the fruit, right? The bark is different fruit, so the fruit may be beautiful, but <clears throat> homiletically, it's like a person who has certain good actions, but his good qualities don't permeate his. He doesn't have inner harmony. Right, but the edro part of its beauty isn't just that it's beautiful, but that it permeates the entire plant. Have you So the Gemara says, well, it's not only the edro. Peppers apparently do that also. Etc. I'll skip this about about peppers after the ellipsis. The Gemara says, Rebbe Omer Al Hadar Hadir. Right, it doesn't just mean Hadar; it means Hadir. It lives on the um, it, 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 it's on the tree, like a, um, like a pen, right? There are multiple sizes at the same time, like you have in an animal pen. Um, and the Gemara goes on. It maybe it means Hadar, Bilano, Mishan, Elishan. It lives year to year. Um, but the Gemara, right, sees this idea that the word Hadar, it's like, it has like 10 different definitions. They all define, um, the, the etrog. Um, but the Ramban, I think, right, gives us um, an interesting hint. And he says it's more than that, right? Um, he says, In Aramaic, it is an etrog. In Hebrew, it's hadar. etrog chemda. And he says the meaning of etrog is desire. And he said, when did we have a tree that was desirous? In the Garden of Eden. The original fruit, and according to certain Midrashim, that fruit was an etrog. It was desirous. So the Ramban says, you know where we know that there's a, that there's a value to beauty? Um from Gan Eden, right? The first tree, right? The Edenic scene, literally, it was one where beauty was central. Um, where beauty was, was central. And Etrog somehow captures that Edenic scene, right? That Edenic, that, that primordial beauty. Okay, that's very nice. So it's beautiful. But what why is that valuable? So it's beautiful. So the et so in Gan Eden, things were beautiful. I mean, that's wonderful. But why? Right? Why is that important? So here, 
I want to I, I want to suggest a thesis from Rashi, but I think it's very powerful. It's very beautiful. And Rashi says in a complete in a different context in Yoma, he says the following. He says we've already said there's a value to making mitzvot beautiful, but why do you make mitzvot beautiful? So a simplistic um, explanation of that would be because. Um, the object being beautiful is somehow brings honor to God, brings honor to the mitzvah. And the focus of Hidur mitzvah is therefore the object. But Rashi has a different thesis. And if you go back to that first source we saw, the key words here are, it doesn't actually say, make the mitzvot beautiful. It doesn't say, aseyet mitzvot na'im. Or naot. It says, You should make yourself beautiful through the mitzvot. And Rashi in Yoma is commenting on why. Um, so at the after all the service on Yom Kippur, the Kohen Gadol comes and he reads the Torah. And the Gemara says that not only does he read the Torah, but everybody who lived in Yerushalayim would bring a Torah and would read along with him as an expression of Hidur Mitzvah. And Rashi there says, Everyone brings a Torah from their house. He brings a Torah to show it publicly. And Rashi comments, You show the beauty of Mitzvot, but what you're doing by showing the beauty of the mitzvot is not only bringing out the beauty of the mitzvot, but you're bringing out your own beauty, right? The splendor of the owners who put the effort in to make the mitzvah beautiful, right? So Rashi says, you know why? You know why you're supposed to make mitzvah beautiful? Not because we need the mitzvah to be beautiful. Because we need you to be committed. And when you put in the effort to bring a beautiful mitzvah, then you are beautiful, right? You are glorious. You, right? You shine, right? The object that you invested the effort in, right? So we know that it's less about what it looks like, right? Beauty is important, but beauty is also, um, right? Not just objective, right? We all know that our, if, you know, your, your, um, your child brings you a painting, you know, brings you uh, something they colored because I love you, Ima, I love you, Abba, right? And they put in a lot of effort, right? Whether it's objectively beautiful or not, it is beautiful to you because it expresses the effort you put in. And for sure, if they successfully build something that's beautiful, right? They get older and they, I don't know, right? They take, uh, they learn carpentry and they build, right? They build something that is a that is beautiful, but they also put in the effort, right? So the beauty of the object and the the intentions and the love right, synthesize, integrate, um, and create this, this transcendent beauty that is both 
aesthetically pleasing, but also points to a certain relationship, to a certain uh, intimacy. And Rashi is arguing that that is what Hidur Mitzvah is always about. It's about recognizing that when something is beautiful, when something is aesthetically pleasing, there's a power. There's a power there, right? As evidence of the Ramban notes from Gan Eden. God made the garden beautiful because there's a power to beauty. Beauty is important. Beauty is something that human beings appreciate. But because it's something we appreciate, if we use it, if we use beauty to channel our commitments, to channel um, our investment in God or in our relationships, then that beauty becomes transcendent. And if you go back to that first Gemara, right? I said I would come back to it, so now I'm coming back to it. The Gemara offers two interpretations of the phrase, the first, as we said, is make mitzvot beautiful. The second is be like God. Now, you could say that those are two separate things, right? That those are two separate things. One interpretation of Ve'anveyu is make mitzvah beautiful. And the other is anivahu, I should be like God. But if you look at the Maharsha, and this is developed as well in the Marafulda, I mean, the Yerushalmi and Peya, and by Rabbi Avram Price in, in his Mishmat Avraham, the Maharsha says, no, Abba Shaul is adding an element, right? The first explanation says, you should make mitzvot beautiful in front of God. The second one says, you should be like God. And he says, so you could say that these are different. That's his first interpretation, but I'll just focus on his last line. He says, if it weren't for the other interpretation, I would say, Everyone agrees that that the mitzvah of making the value of making mitzvah beautiful is what is derived from anvehu. Abashol isn't reading something else. He's saying bimasim. He's saying be beautiful in your actions. Meaning, Abashol is saying more important than the objects that you make beautiful. Right? If Rashi is right that what makes beautiful mitzvah beautiful isn't just the intrinsic value to beauty, to aesthetic value. That's true. That's valuable. It's powerful. But that when we choose to channel, to, um, to harness the power of beauty in our performance of mitzvah for God, that says something about us, right? It creates a, an emotional beauty, a spiritual beauty, a religious transcendence, which is overwhelming and powerful in the way that a beautiful piece of art or a beautiful natural scene right, can overwhelm us. We can also have that experience, that transcendence because of relationships. And when we harness physical beauty to express emotional and religious and spiritual beauty, and again, that creates this, this surreal, this supernal transcendent experience. And now what Rashi is telling us is that's what the etrog is. Etrog is the time of year 
or the, is the mitzvah where, just like we said by Pesach, once a year, we dig down as deep as we can into the values of Egypt, of the exodus from Egypt, so that the rest of the year, we remember in the back of our mind what Egypt does for our life, the ethical values that emerge from it. So what I would argue is the same thing is happening here by Etrog, that once a year, God says, I want you to find a species that is defined. Its very essence is beauty. It's called the beautiful fruit. According to the Ramban, it invokes Edenic perfection. It goes back to that original tree before the sin, right? That it was just nechmad lamare, it was beautiful. I want you to channel that perfect primordial power that aesthetics can have, right? Um, Heschel, throughout his works, has, I think, a very powerful idea, but he says that one of the most important um, in spiritual emotions or experiences is awe, is the ability to say, wow, right? is the ability to be impressed and just be blown away because, as he says, when you see, um, when you feel awe, when you feel wonder, that's the word he uses, he uses wonder, you remember it, right? At some level, we need to not just know up here, but we need to feel that there is something beyond us, right? And wonder has this power, right? That when we stand in wonder from beauty, from, you know, you have a child, right? That feeling, that wonder, it reminds you that there's more to life than you can articulate in words, right? So once a year, God says, find an object whose very essence is called beauty. Tap into the Edenic beauty or the Edenic wonder, right? That points you to something beyond you. Remember that you can channel, you can harness that power to express the intensity of your commitment, the intensity of your love for, for God. Once a year, channel it, dig into it as deep, as strong, as powerful as you possibly can so that you remember how much power there is in that. And then the rest of the year, you, of course, you don't do it as intensely, but it taps into that power. And therefore, the etrog is not fundamentally unique. It's just an intensification, right? It's like the, it's like the anniversary. You, you, right? you double down, you cut out, you, you carve out time and you spend effort finding the right gift to remind yourself because we're human beings we need to have real visceral experiences to deepen our to deepen what we even if we know it's intellectually true we need to experience it so once a year you really really make sure you feel it so that you can carry with that even when you don't have that much time and that much energy and that much that many resources for your small little dates throughout the year and that, I think, is for Rashi, the connection between Etro and, um, and Hidur Mitzvah in general, is that they are related. It's just that Etro is the intensification. And that's why with Etro, if you don't have it, as if it's not beautiful, so then it's completely invalid. Because on that day when you're supposed to be intense, right, you're, right? So, you know, like, you know, you, I, I don't know, right? You're, uh, you know, my, my, my wife very much appreciates a good coffee. So if on a random day, right, I would, 
bring home just a good coffee, you know, she'd appreciate it, be nice. If the only thing I brought home in our anniversary was a, was a nice coffee, right? Because that's the day when you're supposed to express, you know, that's supposed to day, it's supposed to be more intense. If you do something less, it, right? Because of the eye expectations, it's nothing. So in the, the edro, which is defined as beautiful there, if you miss the x-ray, it's nothing, right? But that's because we're, we're trying to set up, um, set up a reality um, that, but that one that carries with us throughout the year. And I think, right, that at some level, right, as I said, right, beauty, right, even in English, right, beauty um, has this range of meanings, right? There's aesthetic beauty, but we call things beautiful when they're, you know, beautiful emotional moments, right? We're at a wedding, right? When, right, no matter how fancy it is, if we see that the couple's in love, we call it beautiful, right? It captures a range of experience, a range of phenomena. Um, and I think that the etrog, as we already saw, Hidra Mitzvah does that also. It blurs the line between aesthetic beauty and religious fervor, or religious commitment, which is also beautiful in its own way, right? You get a beautiful etrog to express the purity of your love for God, right? And those beauties integrate. Um, I think that's part of why we have all this symbolism um, wrapped up in the etrog, because we're going for as many levels of beauty um, as we can, right? We've talked about the aesthetic beauty, right? And the value that it has and the power and the power of wonder. We've talked about the beauty of having commitment and love for God. But there's the very famous drasha, very well-known drasha, that the four minim, um, represent different types of Jews. And therefore, taking the four minim represents unity. And we all know that when everyone's all together, right, when everyone's been fighting and suddenly everyone gets together, we also, in English, we'll call that beautiful, right? It was a beautiful moment, right? It was, we were all fighting and then somehow we managed to get together. That's also a type of beauty, right? And I gave you just as an example, the dots that came, I'll read this in, in English because we're running a little bit short on time, but we're actually doing pretty well. The, sport, the four species of fruit which we use on this festival differ in basic attributes. The etrog, which has a taste as well as a pleasant fragrance, symbolizes the righteous people of both Torah learning and good deeds. The tree from which the, the lulav grows has taste, <clears throat> namely the dates, but does not provide fragrance. It symbolizes the average Jew who has mitzvot and does not have the fragrance of Torah. The hadas has no taste provides a pleasant fragrance. It symbolizes the person who has Torah knowledge, but not mitzvot. The arava comes from a tree that neither provides fruit nor fragrance. It symbolizes the amaretz, the ignoramus, who is neither Torah nor mitzvot. We bind all these four plants together to hint that the Almighty does not look upon us with favor until we've become one cohesive group. The prophet Amos alludes to this concept when he wrote, who built his chamber in heaven and founded his vault on earth? Who summons the waters of the sea and pours them over the land? The Midrash comments, when did God do this? When we formed a united union. It seems to, the, to me that this is why in Rosh Hashanah, we say that we all form a single band, a different explanation. The lulav symbolizes the human backbone. The myrtle branch is a symbol of the eye. Whereas the willow branch is the symbol of the lip, the citron, the etrog symbolizes the heart, the most important parts of the human body, and they are equivalent to the whole body. 
This is what David said. All my bones will say, God, it was like you. So the Datsakanim suggests two interpretations. The etrog or the arba minim represent unity of all types of Jews. And they also represent a harmony, an internal harmony to the human being, right? That he brings or she brings to their service of God everything, their eyes and their lips, their eyes and their lips and their heart. Um, and all these, these levels of, um, of beauty, of value, right, integrate. Um, and I think, again, that makes sense with the Arba Minim, because if what we're trying to do is, is really express in the most intense way we can, the value of beauty, the value of showing commitment, by putting an effort to make things beautiful, then that effort can't just express itself at the mere level of, of, of aesthetics. Aesthetics is important too, but it has to represent itself with the beauty of unity, with the beauty of integration, of inner, inner harmony. Um, and by doing that, right, we really celebrate Sukkot, right? We celebrate in Sukkot this sort of this Edenic moment, right? The, the power that can be in that type of, of human beauty, of emotional beauty, of physical beauty. Um, but we remember that it's not only on Sukkot. On Sukkot, we dig down into it, but only so that we can carry that type of, of value to the, rest, um, to the rest of the year. Um, and I, I'll just um, right, throw out a few sources here <clears throat> but as I already noted, right, it's not when I say Edenic, right? Um, I don't mean that, right? I don't even mean that it's some level metaphorically, right? We're also pointing to the ability to go back to Gan Eden, um, right? And I, I gave you here, right? If you remember, one of the interpretations of the Etrog was that what makes it beautiful is that integration that the etro takes the same as the bark right that there's this this internal unity which creates a beauty um so according to the midrash and rashi quotes it here whatever the original fruit was in gan Eden, whether it was etro or something else um that was what it was supposed to be right all fruits were supposed to be sheitama eats kitam pri he lost again he notes according to chazal that was the ultimate goal that the whole world should have that type of beauty it didn't happen um, but that was the ultimate goal, right? There, that that simple harmony was what the original, what life was supposed to be. We failed, we sinned, but we try to get it back. Um, I will briefly note, and then I'll open for for questions. Um, that there seems to be uh, one other case in in the Torah. Um, where beauty is not just an added benefit, but is actually essential. Um, and that is the writing of the Sefer Torah itself. Um, and if you just look at number 17, when the Gemara talks about writing your own Sefer Torah, and it says, V'kotev Sefer Torah Lishma, <clears throat> the Gemara continues, Tana, the Brighta says, V'vad shelo avotav. The king talking about the mitzvah of the king writing his Hebrew Torah, he shouldn't beautify himself with his parents, his ancestors' Torah scroll. He has to write his own. And um, Rosh Yisraeli and his Chavot Binyamin picks up on that word. 
right? He doesn't say he shouldn't use the Sefer Torah that his ancestors wrote. It says, don't beautify himself with the uh, the Sefer Torah of his ancestors. So, um, right, he basically builds a similar thesis to what we did, but says that there's actually two mitzvot, which are uniquely defined by their beauty. Um, not just etrog, and I, at some level, I think this is even more powerful, but the Torah itself, right? That every time you look at the Torah, it is defined as beautiful, right? The Torah is always, not just it should be beautiful, but that is its definition. Um, and that's what he derives from this uh, this word, just to pick out the key things. And he says, Ha'inyan here, um, in the middle, when it comes to the Torah also, and you know, again, there's something very suggestive about this that the in, that the text that encapsulates everything we believe in, um, it's not just better that it should be beautiful. It is beautiful, right? We look at the Torah, we say it has every type of beauty, aesthetic beauty and spiritual beauty and um, emotional beauty, and all the beauties are wrapped up in that object. Um, by Torah also, it is. Part of the mitzvah, Valkena raised the ikuva, mamash. And therefore, it is, um, it will, if you don't make it beautiful, it will prevent you from filling the mitzvah. Kimoshim furasha davar, lirashi belulav hayavesh, ladat rabbanan. Exactly as Rashi said, by lulav, that if it's dry, it's not beautiful, but by by etrog and lulav, that is disqualifying. And again, he says, he points to that same Gemara that we did in Yoma, that the reason is because um, what you're doing by choosing a beautiful etrog or Sefer Torah isn't just choosing a beautiful object. It's expressing your beauty, the beauty of your commitment, the beauty of J Jewish unity through the object, right? You're integrating those um, those various meanings of beauty together, you're valuing the power of aesthetic of aesthetics along with the beauty of inner harmony and communal harmony, right? And you're integrating that and showing that you value it in an intense way so that it carries over to every other part of your life. And for for um previous Israeli, it's not only the etrog, but it's actually the Torah scroll itself, that object that encapsulates all our values does the same thing. It must be beautiful because it must express that ideal, not just because it's better that way, but because without it, it's not really a Torah, right? If we don't see the beauty in Torah, um, then we're missing something definitional. Um, so as I call, I'll open to questions now in, in a second, but as I called the title, right? I said Sukkot as a paradigm of universal ideals because I think that what you learn from Rashi is that there isn't a binary, right? There aren't just universal values and local values, right? Sometimes there are values that we need to keep in mind always under all circumstances, but it but we can't live them to their maximal way. We can't live them in the most intense way at all times. We just burn out. So what we do is once a year, twice a year, we just say today is when I'm going to focus just on this value so that every other day of the year, when I do something that is related to that value, I will have like a wellspring from which I can draw on to make it more meaningful. So just like the person who, right, they invest in their anniversary so that 
right? They remember how much they love each other and in the little things, right? That love expresses itself. So with the etrog, once a year, we, we, we say, listen, there's a power to aesthetic beauty. It points us towards wonder. It reminds us there are things beyond ourselves. It points us back to Ganeiden, a certain type of perfection that has a power. There's, an, there's a beauty of being committed and, and putting everything, putting all our effort in because that makes it that the beauty of the object expresses our love for God, our commitment. And that's also beautiful. More midrashically, there's this value of the Arba Minim expressing the unity of, of the Jewish people, which is another type of beauty. Um, all those, and there's the Tom Shaved that their taste is, there's an inner harmony that the, that the tree tastes the same as the, as the fruit, right? All those types of beauty of, of they integrate. Um, and we, on Sukkot, we focus on them so that we remember throughout the rest of the year that we should find the small ways in every mitzvah we do and everything we do to pay attention, to put in all the detail, to create aesthetically beautiful mitzvah, which are expressions of our commitment to God. Um, and therefore, Sukkot is a time to focus on the ideas, but the primary reason um, is not just so we can experience that on Sukkot, but so that we create a wellspring of experience that can influence and speak to the mitzvah that we do the rest of the year. And as we just noted at the end, Rav Sholi Israeli says this isn't just true of Etrog, but there actually is another object that we come in contact to, uh, come in contact with throughout the year that reminds us of that, the value of beauty and, and of commitment um, and the like. And that is the Sefer Torah itself, where um, we have to see the Sefer Torah as being defined as beauty, um, in which case these ideas really do have a not just a secondary anchor, but an anchor that we can that we can that we can access uh, the rest of the year. So that is uh, those are my thoughts about the values that we pull out of the the etrog. Um, and we're going to see that at some level, I think that a similar phenomenon is true um, with the, the sukkah in the next uh, two weeks, where we see two different aspects of how this uh, this expresses itself in the mitzvah of living in the uh, in the sukkah. Um, I'll open it to questions or any any announcements that Evie needs to make. And uh, yeah, and you can always email me. My email is on the source sheets. You can always email me if you think of something later. I'm I, I try to be pretty responsive to uh, to uh, to this. Okay, Evie, it's all yours. Or questions? Are, are there any to... questions, uh, Michael? No. Okay, I don't I don't see any questions. Let me just double check one more time uh, if we have questions Let's on Facebook. Okay. Okay. Uh, if any questions come up, like Rabbi Zering said, uh, you can uh, email him um, uh, later on. Uh, but for now, uh, thank you so much, Rabbi Zering. Uh, and thank you so much for all the participants who uh, are a great part of our learning community. Uh, we have a full day today here at Drisha. Uh, if you have time still, uh, we would love for you to join us for uh, Rabbi Wendy M. Salem's class on the Torah readings uh, of Rosh Hashanah. It's tonight at 7 p.m. Eastern. Uh, we also have uh, Rabbi Alex Ozer's class on Rav uh, Hutner at 8.30 p.m. Eastern as well. Uh, we have many uh, more classes scheduled uh, for Luzman. Uh, you can find out more information and register for the classes at uh, 5783.dresha.org slash um, and yes, we would love to see you again. Thank you again, Rabbi Zering, and I'm looking forward to uh, seeing you uh, next time. Thank you so uh, much. Bye-bye.